Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Chadi Nabhan, hematologist, medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today's podcast is with Dr. Jeff Sharman, a hematologist and a medical oncologist in the state of Oregon. Jeff has been instrumental in the development of BTK inhibitors on the investigator side. He actually treated the first patient on ivoritinib. Let me just give you a quick synopsis. Chronic lymphocytic leukemia is a disease. It's actually the most common leukemia. Uh, it's a lymphoid malignancy, but it is the most common leukemia in the Western Hemisphere, I'm being told, with thousands of patients being diagnosed annually. These patients historically have been treated with chemotherapy, and the disease has been considered incurable, except in scenarios where we actually treat with allogeneic stem cell transplant. Ibrutinib is a BTK inhibitor. BTK stands for brutin tyrosine kinase. It's a targeted therapy that actually inhibits the signaling of cells, malignant cells in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And it has transformed the way we treat this disease forever. Recently, a book authored by Nathan Vardy describes the history of developing these bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors. It started with ibrutinib, and there are others that came afterwards, such as acalabrutinib and zanubrutinib and, and others. But the story of developing ibrutinib is actually interesting. If you read the book, and next week you are going to meet the author of this book, for blood and money and billions of dollars on the table, you are going to learn how challenging developing these drugs are. Uh, from the corporate side, from Wall Street side, from the venture capital side, there's a lot of ups and downs and sometimes things don't go well as expected. At the same time, there are challenges on the investigator side. If you are trying to develop the drug and help the pharmaceutical companies develop the drug and enroll patients, design the trial, what type of trial are you designing? Is it a trial for regulatory approval? Is it a trial for dose finding study? All of these elements are not always easy to execute on. Jeff Sharman had the idea that inhibiting the best B cell receptor is going to be instrumental in treating patients with B-cell malignancies such as large cell lymphoma, follicular lymphoma, and chronic lymphocytic leukemia. That idea eventually translated into a clinical trial investigating ibrutinib in patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And Jeff had the privilege of treating the first patient in the world with this drug in this particular disease. The story as described in the book, the story as described by the Physician himself, the researcher himself, Dr. Jeff Sharman, will be depicted on today's podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered. This is a story that you should all listen to, and you should go and buy the book and read the book, because it is probably one of the best books that I have read in the past year. A great book by Nathan Vardy. Nathan Vardy himself will be with me on Healthcare Unfiltered next week. But today, we are going to hear from the physician side, Dr. Jeff Sharman, on the story of his career path, as well as the development of BTK inhibitors. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate the show, and let me know how I'm doing. And don't forget to go and look at my book, Toxic Exposure, the True Story of the Monsanto Trials and the Search of Justice. This is the story of how I testified as a medical oncology expert witness 
In the first three trials that looked at Roundup association with non-Hodgkin lymphoma, all of these initial three trials that went in front of a jury were won by the patients, the plaintiffs, and I described the story as it evolved back several years ago. Without further ado, Dr. Jeff Sharman on Healthcare Unfiltered. Jeff, uh, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. It's your first time on the show. So tell uh, listeners who you are. Oh, thank you, Chadi. It's great to, to see you in this context. And I've always admired the work you do. My name is Jeff Sharman. I'm a hematologist oncologist. I'm in community practice in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, I see patients four days a week. Um, I have a fifth day for administrative stuff. Um, but I would say that uh, the, the bulk of those four days, I'm running with my hair on fire and scissors pointing at my eyes and, and so forth. Uh, and that's because um, seeing patients is is one of several jobs I, I do. Um, and I love it. I love taking care of patients. Uh, it's an experience that uh, for me feels very rewarding and, and something I like. Um, I got involved in research early in my career, clinical research. I know we'll spend some time talking about that. But my practice is part of a larger organization called U.S. Oncology. Uh, and U.S. Oncology is a larger organization that that provides site management services to about 10 to 15% of the oncology practices in the United States. One of those services that they provide is a research infrastructure. And uh, I got involved early on in the hematology research program and eventually um, uh, took over leadership of the program. So I run the, the blood cancer research program for US oncology. And what that role is and does is I sort of serve as a liaison between uh, biotechnology and pharmaceutical companies who are interested in developing uh, clinical trials, running trials, executing trials, interpreting trials, and so forth, and then the practices that that do them. And so I sort of help manage the portfolio of studies that, that we're running as an organization. Um, and in that context, I developed a, um, a cohort of, of uh, co-leaders who are disease-specific, so we have leaders for aggressive lymphoma, indolent lymphoma, CLL, myeloma, uh, MDS, AML, cellular therapy, and so forth. And each of these people have individually gone on to become leaders as well. And, you know, what's really great is when we take on a clinical trial, uh, we, you know, we do our darndest to, to try to take on those trials that we're going to succeed at. We're not perfect. We have our warts and blemishes like everyone else, but um, but we really authentically try to do good work and be good partners to our pharmaceutical colleagues so that we can bring those novel patients to, or actually those novel therapies to patients in the community setting, because we all know that there's a dreadful under-enrollment of, of patients in clinical trials. And a lot of that's because the research is done at locations where patients aren't, um, you know, clinical uh, community practice, we take care of the vast majority of, of um, uh, oncology in the United States, yet we, in many cases, don't have the research infrastructure to enroll those patients. And, you know, let's be honest, market dynamics and so forth, we don't get patients, uh, we don't see all our patients going to universities. And even if they could, many wouldn't want to. So so we run that hematology research program, which has been um, a great source of, of pride and joy for me. That's something I really enjoy doing. And then uh, I guess my third job 
of course, is is a lot of that consulting interaction that happens around the biotechnology and and um, uh, pharmaceutical space. You know, again, helping to interpret trial results, uh, lead lead presentations, and so forth. Long winded answer to your question. <laughs> Fourth job is you're an amazing father. I see a lot of uh, your uh, posts with the kids and you go on these wonderful trips. So I love that about you. I appreciate well, that. Well, thanks, Jody. I, I, uh, I've got some good kids and I've got an amazing wife who, who uh, yeah. I think scratches her head when she looks at what I do. And <laughs> But without her, there's no way we can now, do it. Now that you gave her a shout out, she better be listening, subscribing and rating the show. Right. See, I never cease to market the show. That's what I <laughs> But, but you very know, well done. Jeff, uh, about uh, U.S. oncology, I'm very intrigued by the amount of research that the organization does. So just for listeners who don't understand, and, and to clarify this, because U.S. oncology is spread across the U.S., there are many practices that belong to the organization. So how are you able, like, let's say you have a trial that you want to open for myeloma. Do you go to these sites and say, we have this study that came through the U.S. Oncology Network. Do you want to open it? Like, how, what's the dynamics of opening yeah. these trials, especially that you have offices all over the country? Yeah. Well, and I, I need to throw in one additional wrinkle here, which is that we've just merged with Sarah Cannon. Um, and so uh, I think we were always the biggest, and they may have always been the best. And now we've got the biggest and the best uh, under one roof. So um, it's really a, a, become a gigantic organization. Um, look, this is always something where we're working with our pharmaceutical colleagues to um, figure out what the right answer is. Um, you know, not every phase one study can be opened at every practice. In, in many cases, you know, some of these maybe need to be more narrowly distributed. Uh, phase three studies, they may only want a certain representation of, of practices. Of course, practices, they have to earn their way, right? So if you sign up for a study as a practice and you don't enroll or you don't provide good data to the sponsor or you have uh, unacceptable number of deviations, we're not going to go back to you, you know? So one of the things we have to really monitor internally and police on our own is quality control. Um, you know, I think that, I think that uh, quantity without quality is merely liability. And so that's one of the mantras I've, I've said countless times to countless people, which is we have to do good work. If we don't do good work, our, our reputation will struggle and falter and we won't get the opportunities. We're in a good position because the FDA has recently made statements and assertions that if you want a drug to be approved in the United States, you have to have adequate representation of US-based patients. Uh, and that number that they've said is probably around 20%. And we've seen regulatory activity where where studies done uh, entirely overseas, we've had those drugs rejected uh, by the FDA. And so we're seeing a lot of um, large pharmaceutical companies recognizing that uh, in these large phase three studies, frequently that representation of US patients is nowhere close to 20%. It might be eight to 12%. And so if they're gonna increase those numbers, they gotta figure out how to work with frankly, community oncology centers to get those patients on, on studies because, you know, universities oftentimes have their own priorities and agendas uh, and may or may not be well positioned to uh, work together with, with, a, with a, you know, large phase three study. So, you know, a lot of those patients have to come from community oncology settings and, you know, those companies that are figuring out how to work with us 
I think are, are reaching those goals. And of course we're, you know, we want to be, uh, thoughtful partners with integrity and, and, uh, you know, sometimes it's, you get two large organizations and it's not always clear how to, you know, how to get these two working together. And so, you know, we try to do that based on relationships and that's really one of the great things about my position is, you know, I've got very good relationships with, with, uh, you know, senior leadership in, in any pharmaceutical company so that we can have those direct uh, uh, conversations and communications, address problems, uh, look for opportunities together. And, um, you know, that's why between patients, I'm frequently answering emails of, you know, hey, does this study fit and so forth? Yeah, some of these relationships do actually show uh, their colors in the book that Nathan Bardi wrote on the story of BTK inhibition. But before we go there, I, I gotta say, I have, I don't know anyone who is working at a non-university based setting and is as prolific researcher, author, presenter as you are. I mean, I don't know how you do it. I've told you this before, but I hope listeners realize, you know, this is not easy because you got to really be taking care of patients and all of these things. How, how, A, how are you able to really manage your time and B, like to, to me, you know, I mean, I, you know, wherever you're practicing, you're like, a, 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 like any professor at any university, anywhere at any of these NCI designated cancer centers. Have you toyed of the idea of working at that setting uh, <laughs> at NCI designated cancer center? I mean, I, you know, you, you, you probably have papers more than many of these guys that work at these sites. I had some outreach just recently from a from a major cancer center, and and uh, they, you know, I've, I've kind of often wondered like what level would I go in at, you know, and and uh, you know, this was sort uh, of a, you, you would uh, go in as a professor level, like yeah, tell. well, that's what that's what they said, and you know, maybe I just I I, I maybe it's my own insecurities or so forth. I didn't know, but uh, they're like, oh yeah, you come in as a full professor, and, and uh, I honestly I was really flattered by that. I I I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know. I. Look, the the time management is. I'm very fortunate that I have a great number of people around me who have the same vision of you know doing doing quality work for patients. And you know, yesterday I I had a patient. I'm I'm in my office, and so you know I got an infusion room about 20 yards over that way, not 20 yards, 10 yards, and um, saw this uh, older gal, uh, she's in her late eighties and she has a double hit large cell lymphoma. Uh, this is literally growing out of her skull. So there's a large nodule right on, on, on her head. And, and, um, you know, what are you going to do for a double hit large cell lymphoma in their, you know, mid to later eighties Our chop, come on, what are you going to get out of that? Right. So we, we put her on an experimental drug and it's working, right? And it's working great. And this nodule has been shrinking and it's now just a little scab and, and uh, patient feels great. And, you know, you talk with the nurses, you talk with the infusion team, the research staff, and there's a real genuine excitement about what we're doing. I mean, this is, I mean, you know, that that's just not a situation where that's an expected outcome, right? And we have so many novel tools. The energy flowing into novel drug development right now is extraordinary. And if you can allow that energy to sort of <laughs> be the basis of what you do, it's, um, you know, you, I think a lot of people get excited about the good that we can do for patients. And I, I find it electrifying to see 
the sort of progress that we've seen over the last decade, but I really feel like the velocity is just increasing. And um, what a what a fortunate place we are to be to see the change firsthand. How how many trials does your office um, have at a given point across all disease states? Um, you know, across all disease states, we have about thirty to forty trials. Um, uh, so my group in Eugene, uh, I've got. Um, about 13 medical oncologists. Um, I wouldn't call any of us truly, you know, specialists. Um, uh, I still see breast, colon, lung, prostate, all these sorts of things, but the majority of my practice is lymphoid malignancies. We have similarly about 20 research staff, uh, in our, in our program here. Uh, and then we have a lot of central resources in Houston. So, um, that, uh, Houston's, uh, uh, or the Woodlands, I should say, is U.S. Oncology headquarters. So a lot of our regulatory, uh, budget and contracting, uh, central IRB, and so forth is there. And so this large infrastructure really enables the productivity because this large number of people, we all roam in the same direction, you know? Um, and, you know, I do think that sometimes in settings with less resources. I, I don't know how you do it, you know, um, but, but it's the amount of resources um, that, that sort of allow this leverage to do more than you might otherwise normally be able to do. So you did your training at Stanford. Yes. And you worked in Ron Levy's lab. And for listeners who don't know who Ron Levy is, he's one of the godfathers of lymphoma, and, and he was obviously instrumental in the development of rituxan, which is the drug that transformed how we treat all non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Your trajectory, when I think about what you were doing, was for sure you are not going to leave a university setting and go to a community-based practice, although you're continuing to do research. As you were finishing your fellowship and you were looking at career path, how did you make a choice? What were I presume you were looking at various opportunities and how did you land this opportunity? What made you choose this versus let's say staying at Stanford or going somewhere yeah. else? I finished in 2008 uh, and recall that was one of the last times the world was blowing up. I think we've had several world blowups uh, uh, along the way. We, we um, are in the process of blowing up uh, right now, but no kidding. I bought my house uh, in Eugene the weekend Bear Stearns blew up, uh, and the bank we had been working with for for you know for our entire lives quoted us a mortgage rate of 13. percent And I'm like, <laughs> so the point is. You can't get a mortgage, right? Um, uh, but that timeline actually had 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 some impact on it. Um, so uh, I had been doing, I'd had this idea that if you inhibit B cell receptor signaling, uh, this could potentially be therapeutic in lymphoid malignancies, and we could get into the rationale of 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 why that is. But it was really interesting to have an idea that you know obviously became quite a large idea quite quickly and see how the competition for ideas plays out and, and how success sort of flows uphill, uh, you know, which is to say that you're given certain advantages when you're on the top of the pyramid. And when you're on the bottom of the pyramid, you have to kick and scratch and claw and, you know, do everything you, you can to sort of maintain ownership of an idea. And, um, you know, the, the research I had started 
uh, as a second year fellow ended up getting presented in the plenary session at ash i was forget the year yeah i was yeah. it was presented by jonathan friedberg yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, the, the, the discussant who introduced it, you know, talked about, well, first there was, uh, um, you know, alkylating agents and there were anthracyclines and, and then there were antibodies and now we have targeted agents. Right. I mean, that was sort of, the, it was kind of this, like, wow, this is this fourth leg of the pyramid. And, you know, anyhow, it was interesting to see how as a fellow, you kind of quickly were pushed aside. Um, and, I could see that the career path in the traditional academic setting was going to be very competitive, um, was going to require innovative thought and a lot of pointy elbows, you know, and, and uh, an ability to maintain sort of control of, of innovative thoughts is, is hard. And honestly, I was really discouraged to see how that all played out. Um, and, as I sort of saw the set of circumstances evolve as they did, I did was you, interviewing. Did you, did you feel your idea was stolen? You know, it's not stolen, but I, you know, I, I no, no. I and, and Dr. Freeberg is a fabulous individual. I I hold no um, concerns there. I I could just see that, you know ideas become larger than the individuals who create them very quickly. And, um, you know, it's not always yours to, you know, keep for yourself uh, as long as you might want to. Um, and I think the smaller you are in the process, the more quickly it outgrows your um, ability to hold on to it. So, no, I wasn't stolen. I mean, this is how, this is how the process works. Um, and, and, um, uh, you know, it was an innovative idea that, that, that worked out quite well. And, uh, you know, as you see in the book, it, it quickly became, uh, you know, but, but, but you, but you amazingly had, large. You, yeah. you had the idea and then you went to the lab to confirm the idea. Like when you had the idea, did you, you went, that's when you went to Ron Levy and said, Hey, I, I'm thinking about this. Am I crazy? Or like, how did this play out? Yeah. So, um, Okay, so going back uh, to undergraduate, I loved immunology. Immunology was just this amazing class. I, in fact, I remember taking my final exam with a bad case of flu, and I had a temperature of 104 taking my immunology final. Uh, uh, but I love immunology. And, and in particular, I got fascinated by VDJ recombination, right? And so this is how you create antibodies uh, and how you create t-cell receptors and you know it's like a big giant game of mr potato head uh you take a piece from here you put it together with a piece from here and a piece from here you put it together then you sort of glue it in in various ways you glue it and if you're successful you get a uh, an antibody and if you fail the cell dies and there's all these checkpoints along the way right um you you either succeed and proceed to the next stage or you fail and the b cell dies and you know the narrative that kind of comes out of that is that the identity of a B cell is the B cell receptor and life and death of a B cell is defined by the success of the B cell receptor. And right about that time, a paper came out from um, Klaus Rajewski um, uh, that showed that you could use this sort of genetic system to eliminate the cytoplasmic portion of CD79, which is, which is the signaling apparatus of the B cell receptor. And if you just got rid of this small portion of CD79, it would deplete the B cells from, from mice. Um, 
And so it stood to reason to me that if you could interfere with signaling from B cells, you could um, uh, you could have an impact on on cell fate decisions. And about that time, I got really interested in Epstein-Barr virus uh, as well, just from some projects I was working on. And Epstein-Barr virus has a couple of proteins and can transform a B cell with very limited protein expression. One of those proteins, LMP2A, kind of functionally mimics a B cell receptor. And you can kind of see how, how the presence of this, this protein could have an impact on, on, on B cells as well. So that was the interest. And, um, you know, CD79 doesn't actually have any signaling capacity. It's just a structural protein. But when the B cells aggregate cytoplasmic kinases sort of begin to begin to do the work. And so the very first kinase, well, the very first one is Lin kinase, but the one that really seems to do the bulk of the work is, is SYK kinase, S-Y-K. And so I was uh, in my first year fellowship and I, I just went on the web and found a company with a sick inhibitor and I cold called him and I asked to speak to a medical science liaison, not knowing really who to talk to. And, and they didn't have any since they were a biotech company and they put me through to a vice president of, of clinical development. <laughs> and uh, uh, that individual had an interesting backstory where another fellow had called him and that became TPA. Um, and so he was actually really receptive to the phone call. And, and he's like, well, you know, look, we, I mean, I, I was naively hoping that, he, you know, just by the strength of my argument to, uh, that, that he would let me run a clinical trial. That was, of course, silly and naive. Uh, but he's like, you know, listen, if you want to work on it in the lab and give us some evidence, you know, we'll, we'll follow the data. So I had never really competently worked in the lab. And I realized the only route to pursue this idea was to go ask if Ron would let me do it. And I'll be honest, I was terrified of Ron. <laughs> Ron was- We all Ron are. Was a, we all are. Don't yeah. worry. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Ron's a big teddy bear. He's a really nice guy. But um, uh, I was, uh, I had sort of sworn to myself that I would never do this, but but it was the the idea that I was like, I have to pursue this. So um, I tell you one thing, I'm incompetent in the lab terribly incompetent. I can't run an experiment to save my life, but we scrapped together enough rudimentary data, you know, to sort of validate the hypothesis. And, you know, Ron, Ron, who's really immunologist was, was of the perspective. He's like, and I remember a quote he told me one time, he's like, you know, Jeff, you can put bleach on cells in a lab and you'll kill them. Uh, why is this any different? You know? Um, so I think Ron had sort of a professional skepticism, but uh, some other folks in the lab had just recently had some observations about B cell receptor signaling and sick. So I think the timing was great because he was willing to entertain the idea based upon some work that had just been done in his lab. Um, and then it really helped that I think Margaret Ship uh, came to a similar idea. Uh, and then an investigator from Germany, um, Hassan Juma. Uh, and so all three of us ended up sort of cold calling Rigel Pharmaceuticals for this sick inhibitor within several months of each other. And, you know, I think that created enough momentum that they said, well, let's, let's run a trial. Um, so as my fellowship was progressing, you know, you, you, like you got three years to do this, right. Um, and these things take time, but we managed to fully enroll, uh, you know, I think it was a 60 patient study or, or something like that uh, with this phosphatinib. 
and we were seeing responses. Um, we were seeing responses in follicular lymphoma. Um, you know, they weren't stunning responses, but biologically you knew something was happening. And then we saw this really unusual signal in CLL and SLL where we would get this, you know, pronounced lymphocytosis with shrinkage of lymph nodes and so forth. And that, that was kind of the very first place that that phenomena was seen. And you know, Richard Miller, who uh, was uh, the CEO of Pharmacyclics at the time, he had worked with Ron on the original IDEC. Richard saw patients with us in clinic and um, Richard saw my patients on sick inhibitors having responses. And it was about that time that he got his hands on a BCK inhibitor from Celera. Um, and that's all, all in the book. And so there were a number of times that, that uh, um, uh, some folks from Pharmacyclics came to the Levy lab. We showed them the experiments we were doing and they recreated them with the BTK inhibitors. Uh, and that became the impetus for testing BTK in lymphoid malignancies. Let's go back to the fostamatinib, or uh, yes. I remember this was end up being a blood paper, and I remember I was literally at the plenary session when this was presented. Um, first question is, were you an author of both the abstracts and the paper? And number two, whatever happened to this? Like, why was that drug yeah. never developed further if you were seeing that responses? Yeah. And the interest seems to have fallen through. Yeah, I think I was the second author on the the uh, manuscript and abstract. So. Uh, yeah, I was, I was, uh, included in that for sure. And we had enrolled, actually enrolled most patients on the study. Um, and then they ended up for just a couple more patients. And honestly, with time zones, they opened them up on the East coast first. And John got a couple more patients on, uh, before we showed up to office. And, and so John ended up, um, uh, with, uh, the most patients enrolled in the study. So. Why didn't it materialize? Well, I think that in follicular lymphoma and large cell lymphoma, we saw evidence of activity, but I think the level of activity relative to the efficacy of the medication was the balance didn't support further development. Um, they thought about it. They worked at it for a while. Uh, the, the patients had some asthenia at the dose that was given. Uh, there were a number of hematologic uh, toxicities of the medication because it also had some FLT3 inhibition. You know, it probably just wasn't a drug in, in lymphoid malignancies that was going to have that efficacy to toxicity balance to, to support moving forward. It ended up getting approved, FDA approved for ITP. One of the things we saw when we started patients on the drug was sometimes their hemoglobin and platelets went up nicely. Uh, and I think that we were preventing the clearance of senescent uh, red blood cells and platelets from the spleen because sick is also involved in the FC receptor signaling. Uh, so the drug did end up getting approved. It's Tavalese, uh, and it's approved for ITP, uh, but it's at a lower dose, uh, maybe more favorable for the patients and, and so forth. Uh, we, we partnered with Gilead later uh, to take sort of a second generation sick inhibitor um, called entosplentinib. And uh, entosplentinib, I think we had, you know, four or five publications that came out of that effort. Um, and I would say that similarly, the efficacy was not there in the uh, large cell lymphoma, follicular lymphoma, mantle cell lymphoma. Like we got responses, but they weren't the type of responses to really push it forward. Tolerability was a lot better. Uh, and we saw a lot of patients with CLL able to stay on the drug for a long time, 
Had entosplenib come along earlier, I think entosplenib would have been transformative in CLL, but by that time, uh, the BTK inhibitors were already out in front and uh, uh, PI3 kinase inhibitors were, were coming along strong at the time as well. And so I think the competitive landscape prevented further development. I mean, for listeners to the show who probably are not obviously immersed in medicine, BTK inhibitors, I wanted to think of these as just targeted therapy <clears throat> therapies for various hematologic malignancies, mainly lymphoid malignancies. But in all fairness, they've transformed how we treat CLL completely. I mean, completely. But you are the physician who treated the first patient on ibrutinib in the entire goddamn world. <laughs> yeah. And tell us the story. How did you end up treating the first patient? I mean, I read, obviously, the book. And yeah. I'm curious whether you were interviewed for the book or not, whether the author reached out to you. or Because yeah. I'm going to ask the author, obviously, all of these questions. But but I, I'm curious, how did this end up? Because um, tell us a little bit how you treated the first patient ever. So when I left Stanford, um, I had worked with Richard uh, to, I kind of consulted the pharmacyclics a couple times to help create a, a first in human phase one protocol. But at this point I was midway through my third year fellowship and I had a kid and Stanford had offered me, uh, instructor of medicine position. Um, uh, that instructor of medicine position income was unsustainable. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, it was not financial. Dream. You get the Stanford name. That's I so, get that's it, priceless. but the priceless. And and I have no doubt that seventy five thousand dollars <laughs> seems like a uh, you know a decent amount. Uh, but after that much investment in my career, it just was not going to pay the bills, right? And so I came to Eugene um, and got involved in the the research program here. Um, I. I wanted to make sure this project went forward. And so um, I had talked with Daniel Pollier uh, and um, kind of suggested that uh, he and Richard should work on this together. Um, and, you know, I handed it off to uh, Daniel and, and Richard was happy with that arrangement. He liked Daniel as well. Um, Daniel's a fabulous human being, so um, no surprise there. Um, and... Uh, so the project was um, left at Sanford in his hands. There were some problems with the first cohort. You know, like I think the first patient who went on had either an aggressive large cell lymphoma or might have been mantle cell lymphoma, quickly developed some renal failure from some probably spontaneous tumor lysis, not drug effect, uh, renal failure died, you know, and so you're like your first patient's got a, a, a DLT. It sort of doesn't bode well for the molecule, right? So it ended up taking a year to enroll the first cohort. And when you're a biotech, a year for cohort one is, you know, a catastrophe because, you know, time is money when you're a biotech and you've got a cash runway that's going to last so long, um, you have to be making progress. And so Pharmacyclics decided they needed to um, uh, increase enrollment and they came to uh, my group, US Oncology, and asked if we could... Uh, help out. And in fact, if you look at the original, um, the original PCI 3265 paper, uh, Ranjan Advani is the first author on it. She was sort of the lymphoma maven at uh, Stanford at the time. Um, Joe Buggy was the second author who, who um, 
you know, was a uh, internal employee at um, at Pharmacyclics, and then I was third. But there were like three or four U.S. oncology authors on it, right? So they came to us, and I think because I had a lot of enthusiasm for the molecule, I got a lot of my co-investigators excited about the molecule, and we enrolled the second cohort. I think it was in a day, uh, if I recall. It was a day or two days we enrolled in the second cohort. Yeah, but, and that but, included but, a couple. But that's amazing. Just because I want to pause here just a little bit, because CLL is not like breast cancer or prostate cancer, right? I mean, it's just not, not as common. So did people find found find out, found out that you had it and then they just called you? Because it's not easy to find these patients. Well, you know, I mean, we had some wind up knowing the study was coming, right? And and CLL patients, oftentimes, if they need therapy, it's not a decision that has to be made in a day. Um, and so, you know, we were able to have some patients who we know needed therapy. Um, uh, and, you know, maybe you've got a 60-day window to kind of get that therapy started. And so we knew that he was coming. And... This older gal, uh, I remember her very well. Um, uh, uh, I probably I was going to disclose name, but I shouldn't do that. Oh, no, but you don't um, names, no. yeah, uh, but just this lovely gal, and she, you know, think about CLL in in now two thousand. I'm trying to remember the year. This would have been like two thousand ten, right? So she was fludarabine refractory and had had rituxan. Uh, you know, God, back in the day, we were even still using Campath and, you know, uh, Ofatumumab, I don't even think was available at the time, right? So, would have been and Arnold. Yeah. yeah, and she probably had some chlorambucil along the way as well. And, and so, you know, she needed something. And I guess I had conviction already that it was going to work because of our experience with, with uh, Fosdomatinib. So I, I, I felt pretty confident, like, hey, I know this is a early drug and maybe it was the naivete of being, you know, new out of fellowship. But, um, uh, so we put her on study and, um, there was a whole, I mean, the book talks about some of those initial dynamics with, with, uh, this time Ahmed Hamdi was, was running, uh, pharmacyclics. Richard had been, um, moved aside at this point and, uh, um, you know, certain expectations I had about what was going to happen with the lymphocytosis and, lymph node reduction. So none of that really surprised me when, when it occurred, although I think it was create a lot of early questions, uh, uh, from the sponsor. When you read the book, Jeff, were you, were you, um, surprised by what's going on behind closed doors in the biotech? Because, yeah. you know, you're on the treating side on the investigator side, there's so much that happens on yeah. the other side. Was that intriguing to you? Well, it was very intriguing. I mean, and and so Nathan did interview me extensively for the book. So he's a, he's a wonderful author to work with, and I I felt like he treated me very fairly in the in the in the process. And and I think props to him because I it's um, even still to this day, there's competition for ideas, you know, um, and, and, uh, who did what, when, and, and so forth. But, um, so yeah, you know, at that, at that stage of my career, I was oblivious to what was going on behind the scenes. Now that I've spent more time in biotech and early company creation. And, you know, I'm, I, I, at this point, I help some very early biotechs, even with their VC pitches and, and, uh, 
so forth. So I see it now, I live it now, but at that time, no, I was totally oblivious to what was going on behind the scenes. I just, I didn't know where the money came from, uh, you know, who was on the line. Um, that was all very foreign to me. It's interesting um, in the book also the, the um, you know, couple of things I would like to, you know, pick your brains on. One is how Rich Miller was sidelines and then Duggan came in and, and you know, Duggan is, is portrayed as this really person, persona that is um, esoteric a little bit and eccentric. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the second piece you mentioned, which is interesting, is the competition, the academic competition between folks like who's done this, when and what, who should yeah. credit. And and there at some point in, in the book, Nathan does mention that John Bird said, no, I'm not going to enroll to this trial. This is dumb and stupid. And then eventually he came along and all of this. Talk to me a little bit about the competitive side on the academic and, and research and how vicious this could get. Well. Um, you know, it's, it's a small world and, and, uh, uh, these are all people that we still, uh, work with and, and I have a lot of admiration for John. Um, you know, I think that, I think that the hypothesis, look, I, I, when I did my residency, I was at, I was in Boston and we saw some of the very first patients on imatinib. Um, and I had nothing to do with treating those patients. I, you know, I was a intern or a resident seeing some of these patients and, but you can imagine when you were seeing some of the first CML patients on a matnib, it was just like, holy crud, what am I, what am I seeing? Right. And so I, to me, I had this notion that, well, every cancer probably has a kinase that needs to be inhibited, you know? So for me, it was an idea that, that almost seemed kind of obvious. And I think that's maybe one of the benefits of being young and dumb is, you know, you don't, don't necessarily know what the rules are. Uh, so I just figured we had to figure out what the right kinase was in, in B cell malignancies. And it's, you know, as we talked about earlier, it's the reason that, that something from the B cell receptor would be it right. Um, for folks who'd been in the field for a long time, you know, it's honestly at that time, it was like, are there new cytotoxics? Are there, you know, new antibody targets we could, we could do and, and, and so forth. And so the idea of a kinase in CLL was really quite foreign. So I could totally understand why it was, was, um, you know, something that, that seemed like a silly idea to somebody who's established in oncology. So we enrolled cohort two, I said uh, earlier, you know, very quickly, and we saw this very, very clear lymphocytosis that was not unexpected at all. And uh, we enrolled cohort three, we saw some of the same thing, we started getting some longer term follow up, you know, one of the funny things about the study was we when we originally designed it, um, it was based upon uh, monkey tox data that was 28 days in duration. So if you recall, sunitinib at the time was a relatively new drug. And that was for kidney cancer, where you gave it four weeks on and two weeks off. We had 28 day safety. So we're like, well, let's give it four weeks on one week off, you know, and we'll call that a cycle. And there wasn't a whole lot of rhyme or reason to it. But as you know, the lymphocytosis that occurs with BTK also reverses when you stop it. And so when we put patients on, on these BTK inhibitors, you saw their lymphocytes go up and their lymph nodes shrink. Then you took them off their, their lymphocytes came down, their lymph nodes grew and this cycle repeated itself. And to be quite honest, for the first couple months, you couldn't really tell if the count was going down and the patient was getting better. Um, uh, what I didn't have the insight to know at the time was 
how important it was to get CLL cells out of their protective niches in the in the marrow and the nodes and the spleen and how valuable that was. So we got through, you know, two or three cohorts. I don't remember the exact number. We had several month follow-up on, on some of these patients. You could kind of start to see some of the counts coming down uh, over time, like the peak, the next peak wasn't as high as the first peak and, and, and so forth. Uh, we changed the protocol to be continuous because, you know, patients didn't like the week off. Um, but uh, Pharmacyclics had an advisory board in Palo Alto. And this was actually kind of, for me, I think one of the more terrifying moments of my career, because here I was, you know, a year and a half or two years out of fellowship and pharmacyclics asked me to present my experience to this group of investigators, which included Steve Coutre from Stanford, um, uh, John Bird from Ohio State, um, uh, Susan O'Brien, you know, from MD Anderson at the time. Uh, there was another Phase One guy uh, from Stanford. I think that may have been the totality of the investigators, and so. Honestly, as a fellow, I was in the I was more in the Onc program than the Heme program, so I hadn't actually treated a whole lot of CLL as a fellow, and now I have to present these patients to John Burt, Susan O'Brien, Steve Coutre. I was scared to death. You know, it was a it was quite a quite a frightening moment for me. But um, I think what they saw and they recognized right away that I didn't necessarily grasp uh, immediately was this redistribution of lymphocytes was really beneficial, right? Like locking these cells out of their, their environment was gonna be a good thing. And so as mentioned in the book, um, there was, um, uh, Ahmed had some protocols that we didn't like, we tore them apart. But here's here, coming back to the US oncology piece. So we designed a protocol at that meeting for a phase two study. And less than two months later, I enrolled the first patient on that study. So that was that was a study that was not even on paper. And the book talks about how Raquel Azumi could just move things so quickly. And that partnered with US Oncology that had an appetite for moving things quickly. So we went from a concept to an enrolled patient in 60 days. Amazing. And that was the first patient on the New England Journal paper. Amazing, amazing. As you read the book, uh, Jeff, and I know we're, getting close to, to time but as, as you as you read the book um, what's what, what surprised you like what what parts of the story did you not know I, I didn't really know Duggan and I didn't know Rothbaum um, and uh, I think I knew everybody else in the story and you know there are times where I've kicked myself hard for not taking the job at pharmacyclics that was offered to me coming out of Stanford. Uh, I would definitely, were... I would, I would think you should, you should kick yourself. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what I, what surprised me is I can look at that. I can look at that book and know in my heart that I still made the right choice for myself because um, I wouldn't have survived in that environment. That was, that would not have been, I mean, I, I, I would have been hired by Richard Miller uh, I would have gotten swept aside early on and then where would I be, you know? And, and as it is, I love taking care of patients. Um, to me, it's incredibly rewarding and, you know, whatever financial windfall I may have gotten from it, I, I look at, I look at, uh, Duggan and Rothbaum and, and I don't, I don't really see joyful characters, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I, I, you know, we, we, 
put money as a surrogate for happiness and joy and so forth. But it's not evident. I, I feel so much more joyful doing what I'm doing than, no, no, than, no, no, no. than I think I would have been. Money is not everything. It's interesting. Yeah. Like, you know, you know, when I was, as I'm reading it, um, like, for example, it's interesting that you say we'd have been swept aside because that's what happened to Ahmed Hamdi. Um, yeah. In the storyline, he was chief medical officer and then he was just swept aside. Do you think he was treated fairly just in your honest opinion? And and then why do you think it have been swept aside? Like, do, do you, I mean, I think, you know, the academic environment is also challenging. Um, you know, as, as you know, we talked about this earlier on the show, you know, rubbing elbows yeah. and sometimes you, you never know who's your friend, who's your enemy. Yeah. Yes, every environment is challenging nowadays. So I wonder what your thoughts about how Ahmed Hamdi was treated because you know him very yeah. well. And, and why 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 do you see that that environment would have been very difficult to survive in? Well, I think Ahmed's a fabulous uh, person, and I've worked with Ahmed on on countless projects. And I suppose the job I really kicked myself for not taking was when uh, when they founded Asserta and it was just the five of them. And they're like, you want to come work with Asserta? Uh, I said, no, there too. I guess I've got to learn how to take risks. Um, look, I think that, I think that when, when um, in biotech, capital has part, has power, right? Oh, and there's no question that, that the, the people who make the, 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 decisions of the people who've got the money on the line and you know to some degree that's makes sense uh but at the same time it's it is um dehumanizing i think for 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 the people doing the work right um because you know i think ahmed found himself on sort of the wrong side of of uh power uh twice you know and and you kind of saw that both in pharmacyclics and Asserta, where first with Doug and then with with Rothbaum, you know, Ahmed had a position that differed from theirs, and you know, in some cases, proved to be the right position, um, uh, but he was on the wrong side of power. And and you know, I think that I think that I think that in pharma, um, I guess my perception is it's probably more fair along the way, but but biotech can be cutthroat especially when you're you know trying to hold a lightning bolt in your hands you know there's there's um uh there's going to be a lot of a lot of i don't even know what the right word is but but there's there's nothing secure about that environment i think did ahmed get treated fairly no i think ahmed got screwed twice um uh, I think he was treated fairly by the author. I think the author kind of uh, showed Ahmed at the center of both of these um, uh, and then finding himself in a position that didn't work. You know? Yeah, I kind of felt sorry for him as I was reading. Um, so I agree with you. What's next for you? Um, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, you, you're, you're very prolific. Um, you're a researcher, academician, treating patients, Consult, do VC, all of these things. I mean, do you think you're going to keep doing the same thing for the next 20, 10, 20 years? Or are you thinking of uh, doing something different? Don't worry. Oh, Don't worry. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's listening, right? Uh, Only thousands uh, you know, of people. I, I tell you what, Chadi, you know what's fascinating to me right now? Um and and I, this would be a massive career pivot. I don't know how to, I don't even know how to pursue this, right? But, but uh, aging. Right, the biology of aging 
<laughs> is not terribly different than the biology of cancer. Uh, and, and there's, um, I mean, I've got some thoughts that have been percolating about, uh, you know, medicinal treatment of aging. Um, uh, I would Please find it. Be, Please. it. I'll be the first one who takes the, uh, <laughs> well, I, I got challenged. I, I got invited to give a, a talk on cancer and aging not too long ago. And as I'm putting the talk together, I'm like, you know, we can, we can use the tools of oncology. Uh, we could use the tools of oncology to target aspects of aging that are problematic. Um, yeah. And we've come up with so many novel techniques for uh, creating drugs and therapeutics and so forth. Really the question is what are the targets, right? And, and aging has hallmarks and there's no reason that we shouldn't be able to go after some of that aging, um, uh, therapeutically and, and, um, like know, cellular senescence is, is, um, I what keep your eye on this. I think it's the next, next field to blow up. Hey, I like it. I'll be in. If you form a company looking at how we defy aging, I'll come work for you. All right. <laughs> Perfect. Hopefully nobody was listening to this. Uh, Jeff Sharman, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Really. I, I am one of your biggest fans. I just love Sorry, that's very kind of you. Thank uh, you so much. No, it's, it's that's true. I mean, I think I, I hope people realize uh, what you are uh, doing and what you bring uh, forward to patient care, to research, and everything else. As I said, I mean, uh, again, what what you have done to advance the field of research while still taking care of patients and um, is just fascinating. It should actually be um, a lesson to folks who really want to do research, take care of patients, but want to avoid probably the bureaucracy of large academic centers because they do exist doesn't mean you don't have bureaucracy but maybe a little bit less no dr jeff Sharma, well, thank you so much i i uh i have always enjoyed working with you even going back to some of our early days on cll registries and 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 so forth oh, love those. Uh, thank you for love having me love those days Thanks, everyone, for listening. I appreciate you tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to check out the book by Nathan Vardy and to rate this podcast, this episode, and let me know how I'm doing by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or checking out my website, www.shadinabhan.com. You'll be able to also get my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story of the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. Really, uh, I've enjoyed understanding what happened on the investigator sides for the BTK inhibition. This was a great story told by a physician, a dedicated researcher, a truly wonderful human being who is extremely prolific and who has patient care at the center of everything that he is doing. Before I let you go, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Socrates. The only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. Until next time, take care.